What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, Felony Friday focuses each and every single week on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. This is only one of three shows that we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we kick off every single week. For those of you who've been listening to Lions of Liberty for a long time, you know that we start the week with a show hosted by Mark Clare, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. He hosts roundtable discussions known as libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. Those are fun conversations where we'll bring on a bunch of other uh, members of this uh, Lions of Liberty group here, and we'll talk about things happening in the culture, politically, uh, trending news events, things like that. We have a lot of fun. Have a couple cocktails. Have a good time. So check that out. Check back in the archives for an episode of that. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. Brian's doing a phenomenal job with that show there. And this episode of Felony Friday, this is the 125th episode. That means the show notes page will be at lionsofliberty.com slash FF125. And one more quick note before I introduce my guest for today. If you guys haven't subscribed to the Lions of Liberty podcast, if you haven't subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google Play or or, uh, TuneIn, go do it. Make sure to subscribe so you don't have to think, you don't have to go out and download or think about it. It just shows up on your cell phone every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Now, my guest today on Felony Friday is Michelle Oshasky. And Michelle, since 2010, she has worked with individuals with who have mental illness and substance abuse. She has experienced the criminal justice system herself, and she's had issues with... Uh, mental illness with bipolar uh, disorder, and she's seen the effects of that that they have on causing people to make mistakes and commit crimes that push them into the criminal justice system, and also people in the criminal justice system who um, are, because of the circumstances, or maybe these uh, things present themselves. So Michelle has been a tireless advocate for re-entry support uh, and for mentoring since her release from prison in 2010. That was the third of her uh, stays in prison. And it took three times for her to finally, you know, really figure out to get to the root of the issue that was causing her to be a recurring offender. So Michelle, because of this experience, she calls herself a subject matter expert on the criminal justice system. And she has started her own organization, which is looking into these issues. It's building a phenomenal board of directors. She's going to talk about that. And yeah, with, uh, with that being said, Michelle, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And, you know, 
what we do on Felony Friday, the mission of this show is to give people like yourself who have experienced the criminal justice system, and in your case, you've now turned around and you are helping others um, to make the experience of the criminal justice justice system um, easier to transition out of. So what I'd like to do first is so people can get to know you and get to know your story, if you could just share, um, really, let's start off with first a little bit about yourself, what, what your life was like before uh, your first arrest, before your first run-in with the law, if you could take take us through that. Sure, sure. So I was born in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, of which is the brewery capital of the world, I believe, um, if I'm not mistaken. And so growing up in Milwaukee back in the 70s, 80s, um, there was a, it, being in a bar wasn't uncommon um, and having your children in a bar wasn't that uncommon. And so um, my parents spent a lot of time in bars and so kind of grew up not just in a bar, um, but also when, you know, you're at home and you have parents that drink a lot, there's a lot of domestic violence. Um, I was the oldest of three kids. Um, my brother is five years younger and my sister's four years younger than me. And so when, you know, bar time would come around and we never knew what was going to happen, um, and when a fight would break out, it was really my job to protect my brother and sister and sometimes even my mom. And so I probably started m- momming my brother and sister when I was about six, seven years old. Um, when I was about 13, my parent, well, my mom decided she was just going to leave. So, um, so that my dad wouldn't try to stop her from from leaving, we just left one day with a couple laundry baskets of clothes and we got in the car and went two and a half hours away from Milwaukee. My mom had a friend up there and we just, our whole lives just, bam, we're in a totally different world now. We're in this little tiny town that's a thousand people. And it was very difficult for myself because it was hard to make new friends. You're 13 and all your friends are back in you know, Milwaukee, two and a half, and long, it was long distance back then. I just remembered that. So even calling your friends, it wasn't really an option because you got charged by the minute. Because it was a different, uh, different area code, probably. It, it's a different area code. We didn't have cell phones back then. So it was a regular landline. So if I wanted to talk to a friend, you know, it could be 20 bucks and um, can have 20 bucks. So it, it was really isolated. Um My dad obviously didn't want to get a divorce. Um, He came looking for us. He eventually found us. It was pretty scary. And um, my mom um, got involved with my stepdad, like, I don't know, two weeks after we left. (laughs) So all of a sudden, then there's this new guy in our life. And it was very traumatizing, to say the least. And because of my age, I kept bouncing back and forth. So I never really went to one high school. Um, I went to several high schools and um, ended up getting involved with um, drinking and like smoking marijuana. That And that was never really my thing because I didn't like being so tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I got involved first with the criminal justice system just by getting underage drinking tickets which in Milwaukee, I was just like, what is that? You know, if we did that in Milwaukee, they were just like, go home. But in this small town, it was, you got a ticket. And so 
as kids, you know, we'd be out, whatever. And we'd just rack up tickets, like whatever. Like it wasn't, it was normal there. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know if they still do that, but it is what it is now. And so um, that was my first pretty much pretty minor um, contact with law enforcement. Um, When I was 16, I got pregnant and had a baby at 17. And that's pretty much when my whole life just turned in all different directions. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I was 17 when I had them. Um, And so trying to be a senior and a mom at the same time was pretty difficult. And I eventually just stopped going to school is, is why I left high school. So you you ended up dropping out of high school? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And um, my son's father wasn't really involved in his life Mm -hmm. per se. He probably had seen him a few times over the course of a year and a half. And it was um, when he was about, he was probably just over a year. I received um, custody papers. I was served custody papers. He was petitioning for custody and um, went to court a couple weeks after I got that paperwork. Mm-hmm. And um, in the court hearing, they basically just, at when they got done talking and I had no idea what I was doing, I didn't have an attorney. I was, I was on welfare and food stamps and all those things. Um, they just, said, you have 72 hours to hand over your child. And that's what I had to do. So, um, you know, I didn't understand it, how, how they could just take your kid from you without there actually being like a reason for it. Um, and shortly thereafter, then they said I had to pay child support. And, you know, I was like, I don't have any money. I don't, I don't did get they this. Give, did they give a, I mean, was a reason did they point to the previous underages or what, what did they? Well, those are juveniles. So that, that yeah. wasn't even really brought up because it's in your juvenile record and they were tickets. Um, when the judge made the decision, what he said was that he didn't think either one of us should have him myself or his father. Um, but he was going to place him with his dad. It was very strange. Very bizarre. Yeah. And at the time, the family court commissioner, he actually like stepped into a role to be like my defense attorney, even though it was like a conflict of interest. Right. Mm -hmm. But he also was just like, just blown away by this. Like, how are they just going to do this? And they did, they got away with it. And, you know, to be honest, I tried really hard. I called news channels. I, I, you know, I reached out to newspapers and they were just like, you know, if you go public with your story, they're going to bring up your background and people will shame you. And it was just like, I, there was nothing I could do. I felt powerless, hopeless, all those different things. And so um, pretty much just didn't care, you know, at that point. And that's really when my life just totally turned for the worst because I mean, they took my baby. It was just bizarre. And, you know, I, I had my visits with them there every other weekend and what was difficult about those was my son didn't want to go with his dad. So he would literally be climbing out of the car window, trying to stay with me. And I'd have to push my son in the window and just be like, get in your car seat. It's going to be okay. You know, we'll, I'll see you again. And it was just, ter- it was just horrible. I just, when you're living it, it's just kind of like how, but like today when I think back on it, it's like, 
how how does that happen? Does that happen to other people? Does it still happen today? I don't know. And, mm-hmm. you know, really it was about me being um, ignorant to laws and being poor. Otherwise I would have had an attorney to, you know, protect us. Yeah. You know, it, it uh, when you look at something like that, so, so the judge, you have to assume the judge is, you assume who the heck knows this judge claims or probably thought he was looking out for the best interest of, of, of your, of your son. But at the same time, the judge is, you know, putting this baby in this position and I mean, if the judge knows anything about children, about babies, I mean, you know, but my, I know my daughter when she was one and a half. I mean, even now, and she's almost three. I mean, she just clings to my wife. You know, it's it's yeah. I mean, separating a baby from a, a mother is, is it's just crazy. And then on top of that, doing that from someone like yourself at the time, it, maybe the judge. I don't know how much he knew about your background, about the he did. Uh, drinking, and that's obviously not going to help you. I mean, putting you in that situation, so. I don't know. You just look at something like that. You're like, well, so what, how, how's this supposed to be good for anyone? Right. Right. I could see if I was drinking and driving and he was in the car, right. you know, you know, that could be brought up. But um, the one, one of the things they brought up during the hearing was that, and they presented it really weird to make it sound like really over overboard. They, um, they had a picture of my son's back and they're like, his uncle bit him and she allowed it to happen. My little brother, he was two at the time, which made him Trevor's uncle, but he was two and Trevor was a year and a half. And they didn't bring that up in court saying his uncle was two? I didn't have an attorney. (laughs) So, you know, you're like, are you, you know, I'm sitting there, like I was in shock. Like it was like, I was in this whole nother planet. Like they're presenting this, like some grown 40 year old man bit my kid in the back. These are two little boys you know, and I remember the day that it happened, they were both in the toy box mm-hmm. and they're fighting over toys and Jonathan just rawr, bit them, you know, and it's like yeah. kids do that, especially two year olds mm-hmm. and one and a half year olds. And, you know, Trevor was always more of a reserved baby. He was he was an amazing baby, actually. And so he wasn't aggressive like my brother is. And so that that was just kind of how it was like. Johnny was two and Trevor was a year and a half and Johnny kind of terrorized them a little bit, but um, nothing that you could necessarily say he was a bad kid. I mean, boys are boys. It happens. And um, they also said that I put socks on them that were too small. Um, So that was interesting. If you have a child, you know what socks are about when you have a toddler. It's hard enough to even find socks half the time when you're (laughs) Yeah. And they had the socks. It was like super dramatic. And I'm like, is this, like I said, it was like surreal. Like, is this real? Like I actually should go to that courthouse and pull that those records and just read those transcripts to, to verify that it was that crazy because I'd never, I mean, my mom had gone through that divorce when I was 13 and the divorce took like two years. Cause we had to do like psyche vows and home visits. And, you know, it was from Milwaukee to Westfield where, you know, these, these people have to travel and, you know, I, it was a process. So that's what I thought we, I was going into, not a divorce, but, you know, a custody thing where they make sure that the child is going to be safe staying with the mom or is it a better life going with the dad? I mean, his dad is, was, he's actually a year younger than me. 
<laughs> so it's like, how is he a better parent at 18? And I'm a terrible parent at 19. Like, how does that happen? And his dad hung out with us when we got those underage drinking tickets. So we weren't so different in comparison mm. with the exception of him having an attorney. That was, that was it. Yeah. So, which, you know, that's what led to the child support. And so I'll talk about the child support a little bit. Um, I went on to have three more children, um, got married at one point, And during actually the first time the police approached me about back support, I was nine months pregnant with my youngest, with my youngest daughter. And um, they said that I had two, two felony warrants out for my arrest for child support. And I'm standing in front of our, um, our trailer is what we were living in. And I'm like, you're taking me to jail. My due date's in six days. And so the only way they, the county didn't want to take me because I was in a different county. They were like, they called the county that wanted me picked up and said, you come get her. Like, we're not taking her to our jail. She's about ready to have a baby. And so my husband and I, at the time, we went to his grandma and um, she went down to the bank and pulled out, I think $2,000 at the time. And, um, you know, I'm calling the police down in this county and I'm like, okay, I got some money. Will you drop the warrants if, you know, I'm about ready to have my baby. Like, this is crazy. And so they were, they were playing games with me. They're like, well, if you bring it down here, this money, then we'll drop the warrants. And I'm like, I'm not coming anywhere near you. <laughs> like, Do you remember how much money it was at, the, at that time? I want to say it was, it wasn't, we, I had to pay $2,000. So I'm going to guess that it was probably 3000 maybe. Mm-hmm. And so his, my uh, ex-husband's grandma, she went down and paid it because she lived down there. And so then they, um, they dropped the warrant, but then had me come to court after I had my daughter to um, formally, you know, charge me and give me these two felonies. And I was released on a signature bond. And eventually you know, I was found guilty of failure to support. Um, by then I had already had my, um, my last child, Casey, he was just a baby. And, um, you know, I'm on paper, I'm on supervision for child support, which even probation and parole was like, we don't, su- we don't supervise people for, for owing money. <laughs> like right. it was just, they thought it was weird too, that they would, you know, go through all these things to basically punish me and put me on the supervision. And, um, eventually I got revoked because it's not hard, right. To get revoked, (laughs) you can, you know, break one rule and they can revocate you. And that's what happened. It was, I was revocated on technical violations at the time. What what were the technical violations? What, What do you mean by that? Um, drinking while on probation, being in a bar, just real, Nothing that like, or having contact with my husband <laughs> at the time, we had a no contact. Um, what else? Breaking a curfew. But you weren't Just allowed very... to have contact with your husband at the time? Yeah, for a while, yep. So you were mm-hmm. living, you had to live in separate places? Yes. Now? Yeah. Why would they do that? Because we had gotten in arguments in the past. Okay. And so they, they thought that was the best idea, I guess, and separate him from us and the kids. And 
it, yeah, it was strange. And it was a time when technical violations were probably, I mean, they still play a significant role in mass incarceration Mm -hmm. because you don't have to commit a crime to go back at all. You can just miss your appointment and they can say, guess what? We're revocating you. And, and so when I was revocated, they, um, they sentenced me to two, two year sentences that were run together, um, which means they're concurrent, not consecutive sentences. By the time I um, actually went to prison, I only had 10 months left on the sentence because I'd been in jail for so long. And so I went to prison for 10 months that time, but I was in jail all the way up to that. And um, so I spent those 10 months, seven and a half months of that was in a treatment program that I did not want to go to at all. They had to like, they were dragging my belongings over to this treatment. I'm like, I don't want to go in there. I don't know. Why, why didn't you want to go? Because um, DOC, well, DOC is not a behavioral health provider right there, you know, and I didn't want to go in there because they terrorize you. I mean, the amount of work they make you, they make you write reports. Like I never found treatment useful. Um, and I'd already been in like, I don't know, eight outpatient inpatient treatments, which treatment centers in themselves, most specifically residential, you become prey, you're vulnerable Mm -hmm. in those settings. And there's a bureaucracy in those settings. And when you, um, you know, when the criminal justice system says, if you don't complete this treatment program, you're going to go to jail, you'll do whatever it takes to complete that treatment program. Right. Right. And so this is one of the reasons why so that the sets, yeah, that, I, 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 can, I can see that. So that sets people up to, I mean, you're walking right into being abused, taken advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of co-ed residential treatment programs. Um, so I've seen a lot of really twisted stuff um, in those treatment programs. So going into one in, in prison, no, I, I didn't want to. And um, so I went through this program and it was long and daunting. And I eventually, you know, they, they let me out, obviously, after the 10 months. But then my agent, she took me all the way across the state and put me in another treatment program. And this one was going to be for six months. Mm-hmm. And um, after, and I was just a wreck. I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, all I want to do is go home to my kids. I just completed this program that y'all had me do at the DOC. And um, I think, I think it was, she was really mad at me because I wrote to the governor while I was in treatment and told on her for being so terrible. (laughs) And he, apparently his office got in touch with her. And so she called me at the prison right before I was being released and was screaming at me, wanting to know why, who I thought I was writing to Tommy Thompson about what was going on with my probation and my parole. And I was like, well, I don't feel like this is constitutional. <laughs> were, were you surprised that the governor even followed up on that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was. Yep. Yep. All my fines went away too. Cause I had like a ridiculous amount of fines I was going to have to pay. It was just like, it was overwhelming. So I don't even know where I got the idea from, but I was like, you know what? I'm not a lawyer, but I know I can write a letter to the governor. Right. And that's what I did. You know, it was like my Hail Mary because I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to go all the way across the state. And I just did seven and a half months of treatment. 
So anyway, she took me there anyways. And I was like hysterical. And she's like, this is why you need to be here. And I'm like, I'm hysterical because you won't let me see my children. And so I was there for about 30 days. And then the the treatment place contacted her and said I was overqualified for treatment because I had so many. And then I was wasting space in their treatment center that there were people there that really needed it. So so what, what they would mean by that, by saying you're overqualified, is that you don't have any addictions or you, you've, you've overcome it. It's essentially yeah. what they were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So basically was, they told was her that, that true? Had, was that true at the time? I knew what they were. Yeah. I knew what they were going to say before they were going to say it. Like I hadn't, I'd been sober that whole time. I just did seven and a half months of an intensive, you know, residential treatment program in a prison. Um, so all the programs they had were similar to that, just like mini versions of them. So it was like, I already did all this stuff. You want me to just go get my stuff out of my box in the last seven and a half months and just hand it in to you like it's the same thing so um she had to come get me and she just still didn't let me go home she actually made me live in a homeless shelter she said that my family was no good for me and so she made me stay at the salvation army that was my housing in her um her eyes so i worked really really hard for um about three weeks and came up with security deposit first month's rent and i moved out of that county I moved out of that county to get away from her. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend Conversation Mat Time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com. Once again, that is conversationmattime.com. I didn't even realize probation officers had that type of authority where they can tell you where you can live. And that's, and if you don't, it's a technical violation that can put you back in jail or prison. So you do, you have to do whatever they want you to do. And the thing about it is they have an associate's degree. You know, you're not a psychologist. You're not a psychiatrist. You're not even an AODA counselor to, to be prescribing people this, obsessive this crazy amount of treatment like you don't even know what you're doing yeah what what qualifies what qualifies her to make those decisions nothing agents have more power than a judge and that's saying a lot because we've talked about judicial immunity on the show before and uh judges in many circumstances have way way too much power but no agents have too much power judges don't you know, and it's pretty much what I've learned over the years is the prosecution and the probation and parole have more power than anyone else in the judicial system, because it's the prosecutor that's going to, you know, rack up the charges and make the recommendations to the judge. And then you have agents that can put you in jail. They can make stuff up. They don't even have to prove that you did anything. They just say, oh, she broke all these technical violations 
and we're revocating her. And then someone says, okay, we trust you person, lady, whatever you are. And then you go to jail and then you may go to prison if you have a long enough sentence. So, I mean, the process is that easy for them to take away your freedom. And, you know, you get to the point where you just give up. You just plain give up. You're like, you know what? It doesn't matter what I do. They're still going to do whatever they want with me. So you don't want to like get your GED while you're in jail. You don't want to do better because why? They're still going to do whatever they want with you. It won't matter. So, um, you know, I ended up, you know, that was my first prison sentence. A lot of horrible things happened to me while I was in there. And um, that sentence that I did was prior to PREA. So there was no Prison Rape Elimination Act at the time. What is PREA? Can you explain that? PREA? PREA is a, it covers the whole United States. It's the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And when did that, when did that pass into law? Do you know? I think it was in 2002 that all officers, all everyone, anyone that works in corrections has to take the PREA training in order to have contact with people that are incarcerated, whatnot. And so people assume that that's just for officers, that that's a protection from officers. It's it's more prevalent that another inmate's going to rape you than a officer or abuse you or whatever. And so you can just imagine me in prison at the, you know, in my twenties, I'm young. I don't know what's going on. I'm terrified. Like I said, a lot of bad things happened to me. And then the prison gave me a lot of medication, which also made me super vulnerable. Um, so I was very weak, um, just sleeping all the time. Just, it was just terrible. So in those, you know, in those 10 months, I probably, um, I'm going to say at least eight times was raped by my roommate. And some people are like, how does another woman rape another woman? And I'm like, they strong arm. Like they don't make you do anything. They're just freaks. Like, what are you going to do? You know? And I, I tried everything to get out of that room, but they wouldn't let me out. Like they were like, that's favoritism. If we move you like, and so if I would have told, I would have went to segregation because there wasn't Priya. Mm-hmm. Priya what? protects the victim, the reporter. Okay. Right. <clears throat> so, you know, I tried everything to ignore what happened to me in there and just go on with my life. And, you know, I never really addressed it. I never talked about it. It was very stigmatizing. It was taboo, you know, and I didn't want anyone thinking like all of a sudden I was gay for this day because that's also stigmatizing. I mean, there's just all these different things. So I just pretended like it didn't happen. Like that was just some chunk of life that never happened to me. But um, I went through all kinds of ups and downs with depression, anxiety after I was released from that, from prison and um, was put on different medications. I didn't understand mental illness at all. And I, they probably diagnosed me with like eight different things. And so they're constantly changing these medications that would either make me sick, make me crazier, make me more depressed. Um, So I did end up back incarcerated because what I did was I self-medicated when I got to the point of being so stressed that I would just like binge for a weekend, like just full on. Because I always had a job. I went to school. 
and the kids. But then on the weekends, I would find a babysitter and then just, you know, go out and just do crazy things. So eventually that led to me getting OWIs. Um, and in 2004, so I was out for a couple of years. 2004 was when I got my fifth OWI. And um, they sent me to prison for two years. And so uh, during that two years, it was, you just sit there for one and you wait until they call your number to put you in treatment. And by then, Wisconsin had implemented um, the earned release program because they had taken away probation, uh, parole and started truth and sentencing. And that was same governor, Tommy Thompson. He's still trying to clean that up now. So we went into truth and sentencing. So then, you know, the prison population is growing and growing and there's no way to get people out because of the way the laws are written. They decided to do this earned release program. So that I go into that because I'm thinking, great, I'm going to get the hell out of this prison, <laughs> right? No, it was worse. So within six weeks, I was um, kicked out of the program and put in segregation for um, six weeks. What were you kicked out of the program for? For um, my friend Maggie, she had come out of her out of her room and she was like, hey, I got a new bra in the mail. Because that's a big deal when you're a woman in prison to get a brand new bra. They only let you order those things once a year. You can imagine having your bras and just they get gray and gross and, you know, you're not able to do anything about it. And as I was walking down the hallway, I went, huh, huh, like that. And they said that that was a sexual battery. And I, we didn't even touch each other, just joking around. And both of us went to seg. They came up, handcuffed us, shackled us and took us down to segregation like we just committed a crime. And it was it wasn't like she made a complaint. It was, you were joking no. around with each other. No, so crazy. It was two two girls that were afraid we were going to tell on them for uh, practicing bulimia in the program. Yeah, it's women in in prison. Sometimes it can be quite challenging. Um, so both her and I were kicked out of the program. We were sent down to segregation for six weeks. Um, and I, I did get out a little bit early. I, I petitioned the court to give me, um, I can't remember what they called it. They've changed these things so many times. It's like a time reduction, but your judge has to give it to you. So I got out, I think, I two months early. And anyway, so I get out in 2006. And six months later, I'm back in prison with another OWI. And I'm also being revocated for the fifth one. So I'm looking at, you know, some, some time now. And, uh, so they gave me three and a half years then. And I did the whole three and a half years. And during that three and a half years, they offered me that program again. And I said, no, I'm good. I'll just stay the extra time because I do not want to go through what I went through when I went into it before. You're just going to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, because the thing about treatment programs in prison is they want, they strive for you to become so codependent upon them and put these treatment, these counselors want you to put them up on this pedestal and be like, oh my God, you saved my life. And I'm sitting there like, oh my God, y'all are full of shit because I'm not stupid. <laughs> what you're doing, you're trying to manipulate my thinking and you're trying to tell me I'm this and tell me that and I should do this and I should do that. And to me, that isn't helpful. I needed to find out why I was doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And that's when um, 
that last incarceration made all the difference because I finally was able to get in front of a psychiatrist and be diagnosed bipolar and with clinical depression and anxiety. And I was able to take medication and the medication stabilized me to where I could really figure out what happened to me that I'm responding to the world like this. Like, why am I still responding to the world like a spoiled brat and think I can do whatever I want? So up until that point, you said you'd been on different medications up, you know, over the years, but that was the first time that you'd been diagnosed as being bipolar. Correct. Correct. And so once I had, had that information, everything started to make more sense to me to where I knew where I needed to go to find the right information so that I could be well. And so um, this was before the big trauma-informed care movement. I was able to obtain information and research on childhood trauma. And so I studied that while I was in prison and shared it with other women in there. And they were just like, oh my God, like this makes so much more sense where it's like, these things happen to me and this is I've been reacting to things ever since and reacting inappropriately because we don't know how to function essentially. So um, when I got out in 2010, I was like bound and determined to, to bring this information to other people, most specifically try to get it all the way up to the top of DOC to say, look, we're not bad people. Bad things happen to us. And we don't know what to do with that because no one's ever said to us, what happened to you? It's always been blaming and shaming. And if you don't do this and you don't do that, you're going to be punished more and more and more. I mean, it's, it's very punitive. I'll just say that. So um, with that, I started to really try to align myself within the politics. Today, I think sometimes like I never should have done that because politics are driving me nuts. and I get so angry. <laughs> but um so I was a, I worked to get appointed to a criminal justice committee that was under a council because getting on committees is really easy. You just really just go for one, show up and then start talking to the chairs of the committees and say, hey, I'm interested in this. Can I be appointed? And the chair is going to appoint you. It's, it's not a big deal. So that's where I started. I started under the Council of Mental Health Criminal Justice Committee. And today I'm the chair of that committee. I've been on it for seven years. Um, but what I, what I kept doing was getting to the higher level. I wanted to get further and further. And part of the reason why I wanted to do that, not for my own like ego, I wanted to set a tone, like set a pace. Like this felon is going to get to this seat and she's going to set a precedent that another felon can come, up, come in behind her and do the same thing and show that it is possible. While I'll never be elected governor, I can get to these places in a public you know, I take an oath, the whole nine yards, but it is, it's doable. And so with that being said, today I'm the chair of the Council on Mental Health. I have a gavel, so I just used it Wednesday. Um, so, you know, I sit there around people that have their PhDs, master's degrees, whatever. And here I am with my GED from jail, holding the, the power. And it's, now today it's really getting to people. It's really getting on their nerves. So yeah, let's let's talk about that. But but first, initially, when you first showed up there and you started, you you joined the committee. Um, 
Well, I guess, uh, how did they find, like, because when you went in there, did you say right away your, your backstory, or how did that play out? No, no, I didn't go in there saying, you know, here I am, I'm a criminal. Um, I just, I sat and listened for quite a while, and it was, it wasn't until, I don't even remember, I think it was um, the head of, it was the, the, the leadership in the mental health department, and they were talking about this great program. And they were talking about the earned release program and they're talking about all these wonderful things. And I started asking, I want to know how much money they spent on these things because I knew they were garbage and I knew they were harming people. And so they're talking millions and millions of dollars. And I'm like, and how many people do you serve? And they're like, well, 65. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what? And they're like, I'm like, well, those, I finally said, I'm like, those programs are garbage. And they're like, well, how do you know that? And I'm like, cause I was there and I got kicked out of that program and I refused that program. And you over there, you tried to staff me into that program. You were my social worker. And they were just like, what? Like, how did you get in here? Kind of thing. And I was still on paper. And, um, you know, what I was told when I first said to them, like, we need each other, yet you separate us from each other when we're released you tell us if we contact these people that we spent some of the worst times and the best times with while we were incarcerated that we'll go back to jail I said but no one else understands what we're going through like my mom doesn't know how to navigate the system after prison she never went there and so they told me that if I ever dreamed of making those types of changes that I would have to sue them and I was just like, all right, that makes it more fun by having to sue you to, to get you to just listen to me. And um, so for the last seven years, I've been working with them to um, implement some type of peer support, mentoring, coaching type program. It's very, um, you know, some are like really, really embracing it and it's others are just like, nope, they're going to go rob banks together. And I'm like, but I've never robbed a bank. So why would I start now? <laughs> you know, but they think that if we have contact with one another on the outside, we're going to commit crimes together. It's very bizarre, that line of thinking. And it's kind of, it's bizarre that they, that they think that they can prevent contact too, because I'm sure there's still contact. I mean, there is, of course, absolutely there is. There is. <laughs> Unless they're tapping everyone's phone line and following them around. <laughs> it's crazy. But they could be. Maybe they're creeping on my Facebook. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they're watching right now. Who knows? <laughs> they could be. I don't know. And so, um, you know, I've just continuously sent that message that we need to take a look at what happened to somebody. And we need to take a look if there's an underlying mental illness. Because like myself, I was self-medicating. And today, no one can call me an alcoholic and I can, I can go to dinner and have a glass of wine. I don't need to stay there till bar time and drink every bottle of wine like I used to. You know, that, that's not the way I, my life is anymore. And it's because I still take my meds. I still go to the doctor. And that will be probably the rest of my life. But if I know that this actually works, somebody should listen. Because it would be a heck of a lot cheaper to keep people in their communities than what we're doing right now. We're spending billions and billions of dollars warehousing people and then saying, look at them, they're acting like animals. Well, what do you think's gonna happen? <laughs> I mean, it's unsafe, it's unsanitary, it's unhealthy, like it's overcrowded. 
what do you think is going to happen to people? Do you really think people are going to be like, I'm never going to do that again? This has been just, it's my punishment. And it's not like you get a time out. It's some people are in there for decades and we expect them to walk out the door and be like, oh, this is cool. Like I didn't have Facebook when I came out in 2010. So I didn't even know how to use it. And like two days after I was out, my sister's like, wow, you're getting pretty good at Facebook. And I was like, am I? (laughs) You know, and it was, I was like, I'm up to 32 friends. (laughs) But that's how disconnected you are from your community. And so for me and the organization I created, it's about home health, community and purpose. And without those four things, we can't expect people to do well. People that have never been to prison, if they don't have those things, don't do well. Right. So, you know, really driving that in and like never, you never give up. You never stop talking. Even when they get annoyed, you have to sometimes hit the gavel and be like, can you hear me? Because I'm the boss of this meeting right now. And they're like, you know, what? Don't tell my boss, you know, they're afraid now. And it's like, how do we do this together? And so that's really my goal is to be as inclusive as possible, have as everyone that has been directly impacted by the criminal justice system at a table, creating something together that makes sense for all different sides. So when I say, you know, inclusive, it's, you know, like my board, which is really exciting. We have the YM, uh, the YMCA, the Wyoming. What's, what's the name of your organization? The Peer Association. And it has the same branding as your sign back there. We're red, white, and blue. Oh, cool. Those are good colors. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, I mean, just on on Monday, we um, accepted a board member, and he is the Wyoming's Department of Corrections Secretary, or I think they call him a director. But same thing. He's in charge of Wyoming's prisons, and he sits on my board. You know, that's like unheard of, right? Like, Mm -hmm. what? Even my own state is like, what are you talking, what's Wyoming doing? And I'm like, they're doing some pretty cool stuff. And this guy came to me and said, can I be on your board? And that's just amazing. I mean, just who would have thought that you would have someone that went to prison three times, create an organization not that long ago and have a secretary of a department of corrections all the way in Wyoming, I'm in Wisconsin, want to be a part of my project. That's just crazy. And Wyoming's very, they're very conservative too. And so, um, you know, I'm reading more on Wyoming. So you don't hear much about them. Is your project more focused on your state, Wisconsin, or is it, it's It's, across the, across the board? It's across the board. So only four of our board members are actually in Wisconsin. I incorporated in Wisconsin and 501c3 got it all done but we have a board member in Tennessee. We have a board member in Washington, DC. We have Wyoming now. And did I say Tennessee? Yeah. I yeah did. Tennessee. And Florida and Pennsylvania. So um, we're really trying to capture, you know, as many voices as diverse as possible to be able to create not just role model that we can work together and that we can create some solutions together, but also take a look at that us versus them. My son, the one I was paying child support on, he's a correctional officer now. 
And so that's just bizarre. And he told me when I was still in prison, he was going to be a correctional officer, which I was just blown away. I was like, what? Is your sister going to be an agent? Like, what is this all about? What does he give for his reason for why he wanted to be a corrections officer? He didn't really know then. I don't think he was still, you know, getting ready to graduate from high school, things like that. Um, But, you know, he's 26. He's still trying to, you know, I see him as I see a different side of him than he can see in himself. But for me, I think he went into corrections because he wants to make a difference. Um, He wants to be someone that can actually help people support them. And he's pretty tough because I know that there's a lot of bullying amongst officers. There's, you know, you're a wuss, you're a sissy if you're being nice to someone. And um, my son doesn't care if they have issues. He's just one of those people that can just be like, whatever, and just go about his day where I'd be like, you want to (laughs) fight? So he's done extremely well so far in his career in corrections. He actually works in a jail that, um, that has the, the um, ice they take in um, Im- immigrants. Okay. So they have a pretty big jail. But, um, yeah, he's, he's not jaded yet, and I hope he doesn't become jaded. But, you know, he sees things. He gets traumatized. And so you got to take a look at that. Like, if I'm seeing horrible things happen as an inmate, what are the officers seeing? Um, so what do we do to take care of officers? Right. Because if they're seeing this stuff, every yeah, they get to go home, but they get to go home with all that crazy stuff in their heads, too. And then yeah. try to raise a family and and, you know, have compassion for their kids. You know, I can't I can't imagine what that's like. I really the, the down downstream effects of that <clears throat> really I mean the unseen who knows how to quantify the impacts of it is that's really a good point you know I I had not thought of that I mean the broken criminal justice system we look at it or at least a lot of times in this show we look at it as these individual stories of what people experienced but those I mean this story is all fragment out I mean and yep. just they reach so far so right. I mean the right. I mean, the impact of being able to fix some of these problems are really world changing. If we can, if we can fix some yeah. of these things. Yeah. Yeah. It's a community problem because we have a blog on our website where I've, um, I've been trying to capture both sides and um, we do have a couple articles that were a couple blogs written that are written by um, cor- people that worked in corrections mm-hmm. or do still work in corrections. And they kind of share their side of what they see. Um, there's a really good one on there. I mean, it's a terrible story, but about a gentleman that has been in corrections for quite some time and he's in juvenile corrections. And he talks about some of the things that he had to do because it was policy. And he speaks on one in particular as a 10 year old girl. And it's, we, we ask for people, you know, do you want to write a story? We want it unedited raw. We want to know what really happened in there because people don't believe you or they don't want to think about what happens in, in these buildings. And, you know, once my son did go into corrections, I started doing some digging on the other side. I'm like, is my kid going to be safe in there? And found that the high, one of the highest rates of suicide is amongst correctional officers, male, middle-aged. We already know that in the United States, middle-aged white males is the highest for suicide, but actually it's correctional officers that are the highest in the job category. Oh, wow. 
So you got to take a look at that. Like, is it because of everything they're seeing or is it because of the bullying that goes on? Because a lot of people that are in corrections were also in the military. You have a lot of bullying in the military. A lot of bad things happen in the military. People see bad things. Um, So it's like this perpetual cycle of just everyone's traumatizing everyone all over the place. Well, I think I think one of the big things in life and I mean, from my experience with anything that you're doing, on an individual personal level, you need to see some sort of progress, some moving forward. And if you just think about it, a correctional officer, they're never, they're not seeing progress really. Nope. I mean, in, in in the current system today, hopefully that, that changes, but you're seeing day after day, the same things happen, the same people, um, you know, doing the same things, yeah. p- people getting abused, people getting bullied. Um, it's uh, that's it's not it's not I mean cleaning, it's sad cl- but it's not cleaning surprising. up a suicide they clean up suicides they have to cut people down that hang themselves I mean it's when you start really digging into that stuff because there's there's research out there and you start reading this stuff and you're like so this correction officer had to cut someone down that hung, hung themselves and they died and then they told him to go to lunch and then he had to come right back to work there was no process there there was nothing put in place at the time for that correctional officer to actually process what just happened. Yeah. If that happened in any other career, any other field, any other industry, that person would be, Oh my God, I can't believe you you went through that. Let's get you, you know, talk to somebody with a church or, you know, a psychologist or let's get you some therapy. Uh, But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a great point. I'm really sad. Right. And do you hear that from correctional officers? Do they come out and say anything about this? No, because they'll be bullied because they're wusses and they're cowards and they're this and they're that, you know, so looking at things in a universal perspective as to what is this criminal justice system doing to everybody? Mm -hmm. Because no, you're right. No one sees the success stories. And so that's always been my hope is that by doing what we're doing, world you know universal worldwide whatever they can see that this is where someone can go with the right support and they can also work with corrections on a really high functioning level and you know i'm just in rural wisconsin right smack dab in the middle i live on a farm so when you think about how i i I filed my paperwork at the end of november to become a 501c3 and i had it by january early january And today I have this huge board of directors that are around the country, including a DOC secretary. You got to look at that and be like, well, obviously there's been this piece missing. If I was like a for-profit business, it sounds like I'd be a millionaire. (laughs) Like there's this demand, you know, board membership is board membership. I've had plenty of boards and not, you know, there's, there's really active boards, volunteer boards that are great. And then you have your sleeping boards or you have people that are board members just because they want to put it on their resume. Right. And so for all this, all this support, and it's just me and Rudolph with, you know, with my farm here, it's just crazy to me that people have gravitated and they're like, we want to be a part of this. Like I'm getting to the point where I'm like, I, this is enough people around me. Like we need to go find some money now <laughs> because right. I don't have a job and I'm spending 60 hours a week on this organization. And so you know, I, I'm really hopeful for the future. I, I hope that more people will say, hey, how do we expand this? How do we create something that can be much more broad so that people can really see this? How, you know, what outlets do we use? Media, virtual, you know, whatever, face-to-face. And um, 
something I just like pulled out was I'm going to, I'm starting the process of convening a conference for this fall and it's re-engineering the criminal justice system with lived experience. And I'm right now in conversations with my department of health services at a state level. I'm talking to my department of corrections in Wisconsin and saying, Hey, Wyoming's in here. What are you guys going to do about that? You know? And it's like, well, she's our girl. What are you doing? You know, like, so we're, we're going to be sitting down and having some conversations. I have some meetings set up with a couple of legislators because they're gravitating towards it. And it's just like, we want to do this. I need your support. How are you going to support it? And um, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is, there is a lot of across the country and even probably more so from the Republican side than, but there is, there, it feels like there's more support on the grassroots democratic or left uh, from the left than there is from the politicians. But it, it feels like on the, on the right, it's the opposite. There's more support for criminal justice reform coming from the politicians than there is the grassroots. It's kind of strange, but I, I kind of get to see both sides do having this show and it's, it's odd, but I don't know. Right. We just got to use what right. we have. Absolutely. And you know, a lot of us, you know, us grassrootsers, we're independent voters. I am very independent and, you know, I've learned over the years, you know, like when I was sitting in that courtroom and they said, you have to give your baby up in 72 hours. I have educated my kids on how that works. Like that is, that is not how things work. And so, you know, a lot of times people, you know, they're like, they took my vote, they took my vote. And I don't even think those people voted to begin with. I mean, I'll just keep it real. I'm pretty sure that a lot of people didn't vote before they got a felony. Um, that all of a sudden it's like, you took my voter rights away. And I'm like, well, you didn't vote anyways. But and you know what? Just just one thing about voter rights, because this does bother me. The right to vote is good. I mean, I I think felons should have the right to vote, but it's you only get to vote. You get one vote. And there's not many elections determined by one vote. You can make a bigger impact by getting involved, um, volunteering for a campaign, <laughs> changes, changing right. more people's minds. Voting, it's just, I mean, so crying about that, that's, that's a, uh, that's an excuse really in in my mind. It is. Yeah. And so, you know, when, when I hear that, I'm like, okay, you can't vote, but how many kids do you have? And they're like six. And I'm like, well, teach those six voters how to vote. (laughs) Then you're going to start swinging stuff. And that is when people are going to start listening to you because you just became powerful in that, just that one moment. Yeah. You got something snatched from you you're disenfranchised you're marginalized all of these things but you still have your children that you can teach so that that's the only way things are going to change if you just say well i can't vote anyways it's i'm like okay then don't then don't complain either you know that's that's what the the politicians who put those policies in place want they want people the people who lost the right to vote throw their hands up and just give up but, yeah, well, so. I didn't. And I can vote. I'm not on paper anymore. I'm, I don't have any supervision. In Wisconsin, once you're done with your supervision, your voter rights are restored. Um, weird, weird enough, I got a thing from Facebook that I had to verify who I was because they didn't want me running political ads because apparently I have influence over politics <laughs> on my personal Facebook page. How I ended up in their little, uh, uh, what is it, algorithm? how they figure that out. Facebook uh, algorithms. Yeah. Yeah, Algorithms, how they picked me. I have no idea, but I'm like, what is this? And I go look online and I'm like, Russia political ads. Like what? I'm just Michelle and Rudolph. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be involved in all that, whatever you got going on. 
but it also tells me that whatever I'm saying on there is is influencing someone to look at things differently. I mean, it's got to be. I have no idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're they're running some sort of uh, algorithm or, or query that they look. They're looking across all the profiles and comments, picking out keywords, l- looking at the groups or the pages that that you're that you're in. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how I was the chosen one, but I was. But yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. But I, my goal is to um, have my organization, the Peer Association, you know, as as far and as wide as possible. And it's not limited to people with criminal justice experience. Taxpayers are directly affected. It's like everyone needs to be there to give their input in order for it to be successful. And anyone can be a part of it. Um, No one's excluded. I don't don't say, well, you never committed a crime. You can't hang out with us. It's, It's about, you know, creating a community across the nation that no one can really, you can't take it away from us can't take it away from me. I did all my paperwork, right? I'm all filed with the IRS. I'm good. (laughs) So, you know, it's just about people with common interests getting together and saying, Hey, how do we create solutions and not more problems? So if somebody wants to get involved, um, if they want to learn more about it, if they want to, you know, read about the the mission statement and all that good stuff, um, what's the website? How can they learn more? Sure. Our website's www.peerassociation22.org. 22, it has a whole bunch of different meanings. Um, They kind of shook out when we were really trying to figure out what does this look like. Um, But one I'll give you is 22 years is the amount of time I spent in the system overall. But a lot of us have can identify with that number 22 in all types of different ways. It's, It's really weird. It's almost creepy that we we were like trying to figure this out. Why would, you know, put a 22 after it? Um, why would we do that? You know? So it's interesting how, how a lot of our stories are so intertwined, even though we're all over the place and we're different genders and we come from different backgrounds and we're different races that we were all just like 22. That's what makes sense. So I hope people start asking what that means because I think people will be surprised because it'll also lead into more conversation as to where the judicial system really just, it doesn't end. It just so, doesn't. So if people, you know, send you an email or reach out through the website and ask what the 22 means, are you going to tell them or is there? Yeah, we'll, we'll give them the examples that we came up with um, as to why that is so, um, so true. I mean, there's probably one that, you know, can when you, you give, hear the can number you give tw- one, can you give one now? Can we sure. get one twenty-two? Sure. So, um, I don't know which one I should pick. Let's do double jeopardy. Okay. Right. Two, two double jeopardy. So I'm, I'm sentenced to prison. I have a bunch of fines. I, um, you know, I got all this time afterwards that I have to be in the community yet still have someone supervising me, but because I'm a professional, they took my license away and I can't teach school anymore. But if I wasn't a professional, you couldn't take my license away. So it's two punishments. It's a double jeopardy. It is, you know, how many people lose their, their, their right to work in their profession. So if, if you had a PhD and you could no, you had your PhD in education and because someone else did something and they said, well, you conspired with them. 
you should have known better. You're a professional. And then you lose your career after 40 some years of doing it. And you come back out and you can't go back into that career because they took your license. Is that fair? No, absolutely not. Right. You did your time. You didn't commit a crime. Right. Right. So, So, yeah, I mean, you'll hear some pretty interesting stories from from us. And I think a lot of it has to do with we didn't just do the the what people think you should do when you get out. You know, you go get a job, you go whatever, go get an apartment and live off scraps. And we don't want to hear from you anymore and pay all your fines and and do all those things. But um, we took different routes. All of us did. And there's some interesting stories and it's interesting how far we got with what we know from our lived experience and, and we're subject matter experts on it. And we're using that, inf- what we learned in prison and in, in corrections in our careers. Like mm-hmm. if you read my bio, my bio basically says you should hang out with me because I know everything there is to know about corrections because it's 22 years. You can't get that in school. You know, so I always say I have my PhD in being an inmate because I watch, you watch everything that goes on. We, we watch people. We know how behaviors are. We know personalities, all kinds of stuff. It's crazy. Well, I hope there's people. I hope there's, uh, you know, people who have been in the criminal justice system, who've been incarcerated, who see this interview and think, well, I'm a subject matter expert. I, they are. Know, I should be involved. I should be initiating change because that's what we need, right? We need yeah. more people like that stepping forward. But at the same time, we also need the the flip side of that. We need people in political and leadership roles to realize, well, this system is broken, obviously. So why don't we talk to the people who have struggled through this and suffered through it? Ask us what we need. Quit telling us what we need. I always say that, like, how do you know what I need? <laughs> I don't know what you need. But yeah, I mean... It's, it's interesting. Like when I sit down with any, any politicians or policymakers, you know, I'm like, I start to tell them my story and they're like looking at me and I'm like, I'm your million dollar project. And suddenly they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, figure, do the math. I'm like, so if you were willing to invest a million dollars in me to incarcerate me and terrorize me and torture me, can you give me a million dollars now so I can continue my work to do better? That is a great way to put it. That's that's brilliant. We're not giving you any money. I think you still owe us fines or something. (laughs) (laughs) But that that is that's a great way to put it. Well, yeah. I mean, think about it. If you're a taxpayer and you're investing a million dollars in a woman to incarcerate her, but you won't hire her afterwards so she can have a job because I don't have one right now. Um, It's it's kind of a twisted system then, you know, it's like you don't have a job, but you are launching your organization. So, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm hanging on as long as I can to make sure that this is successful and hopefully, you know, got our fingers crossed that everything kind of comes together and it is, it's just feels slow to me some days because I work on this like 16 hours a day. It's a lot of work. I do everything. I'm the website developer, (laughs) marketer, I'm the Facebook person. I set everybody's stuff up. I wrote all the bylaws, the articles, the fiscal policies. I do everything brochures. I fold them. I make my husband fold them. It's a one woman show. <laughs> really is. Well, hopefully as it grows bigger and bigger, some of that stuff, you can uh, you can get off your plate so you can focus on strategy and, and things like that. But Michelle, yeah. we're, we're running out of time. I, I want to thank you for coming on the show and I'm sure we'll be talking and hopefully 
um, working together. Anything that we can do here at Lions of Liberty to uh, to help you guys out, we're we're definitely uh, open to talking about that. So thank you so much thank for you. coming on the show. I just need to give a shout out to my board of directors. Um, they're awesome. They're amazing. Go to our website. It says meet the leadership, check them out. Um, just actually on the other computer right here, updating somebody's bio. And then, um, also to Malik King and Amy Pova of the can do foundation. Thank you for the connection with lines of Liberty. Um, and thank you, John. And I've already been putting the word out on your show. I think this is pretty cool. It's very cool. Yeah. Thank, yeah. thank you very much and uh, have a great afternoon. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Michelle Oshasky. Uh, just a great interview and an excellent, uh, I think, perspective that Michelle brings to the table. And I really like how she talks about the need to be the need to involve people like herself who are subject matter experts on criminal justice because they've experienced it. They've done the time. And I've interviewed many people who are subject matter experts on the criminal justice system. They know the ins and the outs. And a lot of those people, not a lot of those people, some of those people go in to become prison consultants. I think it's really cool what Michelle is doing. She's using her expertise in sort of a different way to form this uh, this nonprofit, to form this organization the Peer Association, which you can find, I encourage you to check it out uh, at uh, peerassociation22.org. I'll also link to that on the show notes page. But the Peer Association to build this network that is really going to um, branch out across the nation and help put it, help encourage policy that is going to assist with re-entry. So when people are getting out of prison, they are uh, they're able to land on their feet. And that is such a big problem right now. And we talked a little bit about um, the fracturing and just how these things, if somebody is caught up in the criminal justice system, obviously it's not as simple as just that one person being affected. And I think most people realize that. They realize that the families are affected too. But it's even more dramatic than that. It's even a uh, a splintering out. Uh, you know, Just think of a crack in the wall. One crack happens when someone is sentenced, sentenced to... Uh, prison or cracking a piece of glass. That's probably a better example. And it just branches out. You have the prison guards who see all the all the trauma and all the abuse and all the bullying that happens. And this isn't to say that prison guards, that there aren't some out there that are fault and are bad people. There are, but there's also good ones um, who are trying to, to do the right thing, just like in any other field. So those people experience and see some terrible things happen. I think people focus maybe too much on it just... It is a huge issue by itself, just the number of people in the United States tied up, stuck in our criminal justice, our prison system, and they don't look at the entire big picture and just the amount of, just the disrupt, the disruption that that causes. And, I mean, being someone who is very interested in economics and, and how things work from a financial standpoint, investing... Think about all that capital that is being misallocated into the criminal criminal justice system for all these just bullshit non-crimes, pre-crime laws, things like that for not like with Michelle for not paying her child support. When in the first I mean she never should have lost her child in the first place. Making her pay child support and then throwing her in prison on top of that, how are you supposed to repay the child support you owe when you're when you're thrown in jail? So it's it's just a crazy system. I enjoyed my conversation with Michelle very much today to join the Lions of Liberty Pride if you haven't already. You can join by going to 
patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. That's right. Our Lions of Liberty pride has been moved from Podbean to Patreon. We're getting everybody moved over. Now at Patreon, we have the ability to have um, video, video only uh, pride material, pride content, which you've been doing. In fact, the last episode of Degenerate Gamblers, we published in video and in audio. We're going to do the same thing uh, with the next episode of Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. That's going to be Pride only, an episode of Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor coming up. That will be available to Pride members in video format. So I'm sure that'll be entertaining. For those of you who were wondering what we all look like, if you're you're watching this now, you know what I look like. But if you're wondering what Howie or Mark or Brian, if you're you know, if you're not a $25 level Pride member, those guys get conference calls with us every month. They see us all the time. I mean, you might be might be thinking, is this a goofy looking guy? Or, you know, I don't know. So, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that doesn't matter. But anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it today. Uh, this is an experiment we're doing with uh, with the videos, and this is obviously released on YouTube. I don't know if we'll continue it. We'll see what kind of traction we get. I appreciate good comments and and upvotes, stuff like that, to encourage us to continue to do it. And your feedback is appreciated in the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can find it on Facebook. Go to Facebook, punch Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top, and let us know what you think of of this video, of of, uh, of this podcast, what you think of the Lions of Liberty, and just come up, hang out, have a good time. The Lions of Liberty Forum is just a nice little sane corner of the internet. We don't... Uh, we don't take ourselves too too seriously. Um, some, I mean, most of us don't, and there's not any condescension and, and things like that. I think we have some good, fair discussions in the Lions, Lions of Liberty Forum. So come check it out. That's all I got for the show today, guys. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>